This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. This week, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, that's a federal agency that manages water in the western U.S., started the process of cutting the amount of water allotted to users along the Colorado River after seven states missed the deadline for coming up with their own reduction plan. The area has been under a long-running drought, and with water in demand for everything from drinking to agriculture to electric power, and with the population of the area on the rise, states just can't seem to be able to hash out an agreement themselves. Joining me now to talk about the plan for distributing Western water and other stories from the week in science is Umair Ifan, staff writer at Vox. Welcome back. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me back. Okay, these water cuts. This is serious stuff, isn't it? With a strangling drought in the West, who gets the water? How much? Yeah, that's right. You know, there are seven states that are part of this Colorado River Compact. And initially, they were supposed to come up with a plan by this week to cut 2 million to 4 million acre feet of water. One acre foot of water is basically how much water it takes to flood one acre of land one foot deep. And they just did not do that. And so the federal government said, well, one, you still have to come up with that plan. And two, they started imposing their own set of cuts on top of that. And so the new set of cuts will affect Arizona, Nevada, and parts of Mexico. And they'll have to reduce their consumption by about 720,000 acre feet. You know, that's not anywhere close to the millions that are needed, but these are the cuts that are going to be imposed by the federal government. And that's because, you know, as you noted, there is a long running drought. There is first this uh, 20 year long drying period that we are in in the West. And also we're in a drought period from the last two years. And so sort of a drought within a drought is happening right now, which is pushing all these water resources to the brink. So how do they decide how much different users get allocated? Well, it goes back to history, and there's some strange rules with how the Colorado River's water is divided. You know, initially this has to do with seniority. Basically, the people who are there first have the longest standing and the first claims to it. But the water that's being allocated, there's more water being allocated than there actually is. And so this over-allocation problem is part of why there's been such a rapid drawdown. And so states and water users in the region have to basically go back to their baseline and decide how to use what the actual water is there. You know, they have to actually deal with what's physically there rather than what they're actually imagining would be there. And uh, that's going to be a big political challenge. You know, there's a lot of very powerful interests here that don't want the status quo to change, while there are others that, you know, that are very drastically suffering. You know, people in Arizona and people in Mexico are getting just a trickle of the water from the Colorado River, and they desperately need that just to, you know, stay hydrated and to keep their farms and other kinds of livelihoods running. And so there's a big tension here that really needs to be resolved. And it's also the uh, the the problem of making electric power because the water level in Lake Mead that drives the power generators in Hoover Dam are at record lows along with levels in Lake Powell. So there's an energy crisis looming. Right. And it's not just the hydroelectric plants. You know, water is essential for making all kinds of energy products, you know, hydraulic fracturing to make oil and gas. Uh, It takes about one and a half barrels of water to make every refined gallon of gasoline or refined fuel. So it's also really important for cooling power plants. And we're seeing stresses on all of these things right now. When water temperatures get too high, power plants function less efficiently and they produce less electricity. 
And, you know, there's also limitations on how hot of water that they can discharge back into nature. And so in this period, we've seen this summer with extreme heat and extreme dryness, a lot of power resources have been stressed. Now, the West so far hasn't seen any major blackouts, and that's because in the Pacific Northwest, they've actually had a fair amount of rainfall this past winter, and they're generating a lot more electricity to compensate for it. But, you know, water managers and resource managers in the West are concerned that, you know, in the next few years, if this drought persists, we could see a point where the major generators, like you noted, on the Hoover Dam and on uh, Lake Powell with the Glen Canyon Dam, they could reach a point where they're no longer able to generate electricity. And so some of them are, are, are turning to nuclear power, right? Right. You know, we've seen a step in of all sorts of different kinds of energy resources. We've seen uh, fossil fuel plants step in to uh, compensate for some of the downfall of, of hydroelectric power. We've seen a big cutoff in that. But recently, just this week, we saw an announcement from California that they want to bail out their last remaining nuclear power plant, the uh, Diablo Canyon plant. This plant provides about 9.3% of the state's electricity. And now there's a proposal to keep it running from its initial shutdown date of 2025 all the way out to potentially up to 2035. And this is not just here in the States. They're, over in Europe, they're thinking of extending the lives of their nuclear power plants. Right. Europe is also facing a major energy crisis. Like Similarly, for many of the uh, heat and drought reasons we've seen here in the United States, you know, water levels on the Rhine are really low. So Germany is having trouble getting its fuel shipments, its coal and gas in. And in France, nuclear power plants have had to actually shut down because water temperatures have gotten too hot for them to cool off. But Germany was initially planning to shut down all of its nuclear power plants by the end of this year. But after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they saw a big drop off in their natural gas resources. Germany is the largest purchaser of natural gas. And they're now concerned that they won't be able to meet their uh, domestic energy demand. Demand. And so the government is now proposing, rather than shutting down their nuclear plants, keeping them running. So about 13% of Germany's electricity used to come from nuclear. It's now down to 6%. But the government now says that it's really vital to keep that resource running. Was the California plant not economically feasible to keep running? Yeah, there were a number of factors. You know, nuclear is fairly expensive to keep running. And in California, you know, they have plenty of solar and wind, which can come on the grid very cheap. And then also a lot of natural gas, which is also very cheap. And this plant was also fairly old and it needed a number of upgrades in order to meet current regulatory and safety standards that were fairly expensive. But the uh, state says that, you know, uh, now that the uh, upsides of keeping nuclear running outweigh the downsides and the cost of this. There was a study that came out uh, just a couple of years ago that said that California could reduce its power sector emissions by about 10% and save about $2.6 billion by keeping the plant running through 2035. So there is sort of a financial case over the long term for keeping this plant running. Yeah, but there's also the political case here. California is not known for being pro-nuclear. Right. You know, there's been a major environmental movement there, and um, a lot of anti-nuclear campaigners have been very successful in shutting down the state's other nuclear power plants. And so there is sort of a political tension, you know, particularly since, you know, California is governed by a democratic coalition and, you know, environmentalists and some anti-nuclear environmentalists are part of that. And so resolving that and making the case to them is going to be part of the uh, challenge for keeping nuclear running. Okay, let's move on to a different kind of energy a cosmic light show that's unusual. Tell us about that. 
Right. Uh, so a few days ago, scientists detected these eruptions on the sun called coronal mass ejections. And they send these waves of energized particles away from the sun and toward Earth. And when these particles hit the Earth, they can actually excite the gases in our atmosphere and cause them to light up, similar to how you know electricity excites neon gas and makes that light up. And this is the phenomenon that's behind the northern lights, you know, Aurora Borealis and also the southern lights near the South Pole. Typically, they stay near the poles, but because we saw such an intense wave of these energized particles hitting the Earth this week, starting on Wednesday, they are now can be visible much further south in parts of even the northern continental United States, in states like New York and in Oregon and in Iowa. And that a storm is expected to continue tonight as well. And so this is a sort of a very unusual event to see these uh, lights this far south. But um, it's one of the few ways that we can perceive space weather from the ground. I'm always just a little too far south to see these. Are they are they predictable at all? Yeah, actually, NOAA, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they have a space weather prediction center where they monitor these kinds of things and they can actually put out models to see where they expect auroras to form. Now, you know, these uh, magnetized particles, they... In addition to making auroras, if they get severe enough, they can damage electronics, communications, and satellites. And that is the main reason that they're monitoring it, because they want to be able to anticipate these kinds of problems. But the strength of the recent storm is not expected to reach those levels. And so we'll hopefully just get a nice light show out of it rather than any kind of you know disruptions. Yeah, hopefully. Let's turn to something else in the skies. And this is the possibility of resurrecting supersonic Air travel? I remember I remember those SSTs. Yeah. Uh, this week, American Airlines said that they're going to be buying 20 supersonic aircraft from this company called Boom Supersonic. Uh, supersonic aircraft are planes that travel faster than the speed of sound, about 768 miles per hour. And this follows an announcement from United Airlines uh, a while back that said that they would buy 15 airplanes from this company. So this is, seems to be a fairly um, large purchase order from airlines from this uh, company that really hasn't built any planes yet, but they expect to begin test flights in 2026 and start carrying passengers in 2029. Aside from trying to fly in a jet called Boom, <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know who came up with that name. I mean, the, the, the Concorde, as I say, used to be in service and it was taken out of service. What makes this time different? What has changed? That's a great question. You know, the Concorde, when it first came out, was, you know, hailed as the future of aviation, but it was quickly hit by an energy crisis. You know, there was a big spike in fuel prices around the world. People started being concerned about the environmental impacts. You know, in order to go faster, you need to burn more fuel. And it wasn't very big inside, so it wasn't a very large and comfortable aircraft. It was a fairly small and cramped uh, way to get around. And so uh, the cost got too high. The environmental benefits were very low. And so that's part of why the the Concorde was phased out. And many of those same concerns are still present now. You know, we're still facing a fuel crunch. We're still more concerned about uh, things like climate change. And, you know, aviation is a major contributor. About 5% of warming can be attributed to the aviation sector in any given year. And so decarbonizing aircraft is going to be a big challenge. Now, this company, Boom Supersonic, says that they want to be net zero carbon from day one. They have a suite of different tactics they want to use to do that, basically using renewable fuels and also perhaps a combination of offsets and other mechanisms. But this is really sort of an untested strategy, and it would be really interesting if they can actually pull off the environmental component as well as they pull off the uh, flying very fast component. Finally, heading into the weekend, we all know that thinking hard can leave you exhausted, but there's new research into why, right? 
Yeah, I read this piece by Claire Wilson in New Scientist that looks at this recent study about why people feel tired after doing difficult mental tasks. Now, the conventional wisdom was that your brain doesn't actually use that much more energy when it's thinking hard versus when it's slacking off. But they found that there might be an actual mechanism that explains this kind of fatigue. So researchers at the Paris Brain Institute in France, they uh, use this technique called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, which can track chemicals inside living tissue. And they asked 40 people to do do these memory tasks inside a scanner where they had to look at letters and numbers and colors and try to remember different aspects about them. And after six hours of these tests, they found that the people who did the harder task had elevated levels of this chemical called glutamate. Glutamate is an amino acid, but it also functions as a neurotransmitter. And the people who did the harder task had more of this glutamate and they reported being more tired. So this could potentially be a way to signal mental fatigue and a way that you can actually track this in people. Wow, very interesting. Always interesting stuff, Umair. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Have a good weekend, too. Umair Irfan, staff writer at Vox.